Uh, this morning, verses uh, 1 through 10 of John chapter 20, going to look at uh, John's account of the empty tomb. Uh, <clears throat> Got to say, as I was getting ready to preach uh, on this passage throughout the week, uh, sitting at my desk, I found myself involuntarily smiling and even laughing out loud, reflecting on this passage. And I got to say, the resurrection will do that to you folks. It will, uh, it'll put a smile on your face and it'll put a skip in your step. Uh, when you come to terms with the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how Easter really does change everything. And that's what we're going to think about today, uh, how the resurrection changes everything. And so hear now the gospel, the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but uh, folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Well, the resurrection changes everything. And because of that, one of the great dangers that we face in thinking about the significance of uh, the empty tomb is underappreciating the magnitude of what took place on this first day of the week. Uh, it is very easy and very possible for us to fall short of the glory of what actually happened, although we might be familiar with the story, although we might know the details of what took place on this day, it's something that we often underestimate in our daily lives. But the empty tomb, it is full, it is packed full of significance that exceeds our ability to comprehend. It's a big deal, we could say, it's a big deal. And John has written his gospel to help us begin to understand its significance for our lives. Here on the first day of the week, 
While it's still dark, we discover the dawn of the new creation. That's the first thing that I think John wants us to grapple with, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the dawn of the new creation. Although the four Gospels give us different accounts of the resurrection, accounts which are complementary and not contradictory, it's, it's worth noting that all four of them begin with the exact same precise timestamp. All of them begin the account, uh, their account of the resurrection of Jesus with the exact same timestamp. All of them say that the resurrection occurred on the first day of the week. All of them draw attention to the fact that Jesus rose on the first day of the week. And so this must be significant. Given the fact that Jesus predicted that he would rise again on the third day, counting from the day of his crucifixion, you would expect the Gospels to focus on that. That Jesus did in fact rise three days later, but their attention lies elsewhere. Their emphasis lies on the fact that the resurrection of Jesus occurred on the first day of the week. Uh, in John's account, this detail is included. It's mentioned not just once, but twice in verse 1, and then further on in the chapter in verse 19. And that raises the question, why? What is the significance of this precise timestamp? It's, it's worth remembering, and someday we'll appreciate this, I think, more deeply if Together we're able to work through the gospel of John together. But it's worth remembering now that the resurrection of Jesus occurred in the context of a garden. I said this several weeks ago, I think in Sunday school, that the, the suffering of Jesus, his passion, it, it began to dawn on him in the context of a garden and the resurrection occurred in the context of a garden. And this serves to communicate in the gospel of John that the resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of a whole new creation. In other words, John is calling attention to the first day of the week in order to depict the resurrection as the beginning of something radically new. Easter changes everything. You see, for God's people <clears throat> under the Old Covenant, in the time of the Old Testament, going all the way back to creation, time was organized and ordered by the Sabbath. And this, this fact, it stands out in the original Greek of John 20, verse 1, where the word for week is literally, in Greek, the word for Sabbath. Uh, the word translated day of the week is literally the word Sabbaths or Sabaton. And so a literal translation could read on the first day of the Sabbaths. Uh, <clears throat> lots of commentators point this out, but Leon Morris is a good example <clears throat> of how Jews used this expression, days of the week or days of the Sabbaths, to, to note the time between two Sabbaths. 
And in doing so, it brought out the truth that the Sabbath day, the day set apart by God as holy, was the important day. How do you think about a week? How do you refer to the other days of the week? Well, they're just the days between Sabbaths. But the most important day, the day around which all of our time is now ordered and organized, has shifted from the last day of the week to the first day. Now just think about that. New, new creation um, in, the, in the flesh on the first day of the week. It's, 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 why, it's why we're here today and, and not yesterday. I wonder if you've ever thought about that. The resurrection of Jesus is the reason that we are here on Sunday and not on Saturday. In the beginning, when God finished the work of creation, he rested on the seventh day. It was the, the Sabbath day given at creation to establish this pattern of work and then rest and The Sabbath was given in the beginning as a signpost to Adam, the first man, that if he completed the work God gave to him, that he would enter into a state of eternal Sabbath rest. Just as God the creator entered into an eternal day of Sabbath rest after completing the work of creation. We know how the story goes. Adam didn't complete the work. He didn't finish the work. His father gave to him, and as a result of sin, he was told that he would now work in a creation under the curse. And then running, I wish we had time to explore this, but running throughout the Old Testament, we then have this promise again and again and again of rest for God's people. But where is this rest ultimately found? How is it ultimately found? brought and given to God's people. How is it secured? It is secured by another man, by a second Adam. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's secured by the second Adam who completed the work the Father gave him, securing redemption for his people and life In a world made new. This is why the resurrection of Jesus changes the pattern. Because Christ has brought ultimate rest to us. He Think about it this way. He finished the good work on Friday. He rested in the grave on the old covenant Sabbath. And then he rose on the first day of the dawn of the new creation. And so from creation until the coming of Christ, the Sabbath was the seventh day of the week. And you know, in scripture, the number seven is highly symbolic. It signifies perfection or completion. And this seventh uh, day Sabbath, all along from the beginning of creation, anticipated the work of Jesus. And by being obedient By being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross and rising from the dead, Jesus secured redemption and new creation for his people. And as a result, the way that time itself is ordered is changed. That's how significant the resurrection of Jesus Christ is. 
It's why we come together on the first day of the week, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, the day that we call the Lord's Day rather than the last day of the week. I love the way B.B. Warfield puts it. Listen to him. This is a quote from him. He says, Christ took the Sabbath into the grave with him and brought the Lord's Day out of the grave with him on the resurrection morn. And our very presence here today, brothers and sisters, is corporate testimony to this great change that has taken place. It is testimony to the fact that the new creation has already dawned as the church gathers, which is a new creation created in Christ Jesus. We begin each week at rest. We begin each week resting in the finished work of Christ because he's done it. As he said on the cross, it is finished. He has secured our eternal rest in a new world that we look forward to seeing one day. In fact, I don't know if you think about Sunday this way, but if not, I encourage you to begin thinking about the Lord's Day this way. This is what Sunday is for, among other things. It is a day for us to taste and get used to our good future. It is a day for us to practice the good future Jesus has secured for us. The first day comes around every week to remind us that if anyone is in Christ, new creation. That's what Paul says. The old is gone, the new has come, because Christ has done it. And so the resurrection marks the dawn of the new creation, but it, it did even more than that. It, it also... It also marked a radical reversal of the status quo, particularly for women. I want to think about this for a minute. It's, it is another remarkable fact that in all four Gospels, women are identified as the first witnesses of the resurrection. And why is that remarkable? Well, because in the ancient world, Women were not highly esteemed in first century Palestine, let alone throughout the Greco-Roman Empire. In fact, according to Josephus, who's representative of the culture at that time, Josephus, a, a first century Jewish historian, these are his words. He says, the woman is in all things inferior to the man. But based upon the gospel's uh, accounts of the resurrection of Jesus and the ministry of women in the apostolic church, Jesus and the apostles clearly did not share this perspective on women. Although women were not even allowed to testify in court, public court in the first century, John tells us that Mary Magdalene was both the first person to arrive at the empty tomb and the first person that Jesus revealed himself to in his resurrected state. We see that in verse 14. Now just think about that. <clears throat> think about new creation in the flesh. Okay, New creation in the midst of this old world, this passing age. The first time new creation had actually been seen. Who's allowed to see it? Now just as an aside, this... 
This is an important point, I think, for the historical reliability of the Gospels and their account of the resurrection, because it would have made absolutely no sense whatsoever for early Christians to have fabricated a story where women in the first century played a fundamental role in eyewitness testimony. Right? A made-up story would have never been written like this. This eyewitness role would have been reserved for men who were seen as those who were fit to bear legal witness in a courtroom setting. So if the Gospels were written as many, many popular works of fi fiction today would have you believe by bishops years and years, even centuries removed from the time of the life and ministry of Jesus, I think we've got to recognize that they would have never, ever written the story this way. Fabricated accounts would have certainly appealed to men who could have served as witnesses in court and who are respected and acknowledged as credible witnesses. And so I think, I think the intellectually honest conclusion to make is that this is really how it happened. This is how it went down. Mary Magdalene was the first to the empty tomb and the first to see Jesus risen from the dead. They weren't making it up. John is reporting how it happened. Now, the fact that Mary Magdalene is the first person at the tomb is not only, a, I think, a powerful apologetic point for the historical reliability of the Gospels, I think it also underscores a great reversal. I want you to think about this. Do not, do not forget that according to Genesis, the very first person that Satan attacked, who was it? Who's the first person that Satan attacked in the garden? It was the woman. It was Eve. He went after her first, the first woman. And I think it's no accident that therefore when the curse is undone, that the first person to witness the victory was also a woman. Now add to that, I think parallel as well, this becomes all the more striking in light of the Gospel of Luke. John's Gospel was written uh, last in the four Gospels, and if you read the Gospel of John closely, it's clear that he assumes his readers have some knowledge of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in Luke 8, we're told that Jesus cast out seven demons out of Mary Magdalene. Now, I can't even begin to imagine what life would be like under the oppression and torment of seven, remember the significance of seven in the world of the Bible, what life would have been like under the oppression of seven demons controlling your life. Imagine the terror and darkness. So like the first woman in the first garden, this woman in this garden had been very specifically targeted by the evil one. And so it's fitting, isn't it? It's so like our Lord Jesus Christ that he would come to her first. That he would reveal himself to her first. That he would bestow upon her this honor. Right? After he had cast out the, those demons and yet the terror and darkness that had likely flooded her life once again as she stood at the foot of the cross and watched Jesus die. 
But Jesus would reveal himself to her first, risen from the dead. I, just, I found myself reading this passage, saying to myself, that's my Jesus. Right? That's our Lord who crushed the serpent's head. And what was happening, though, um, in the empty tomb is not something that Mary understood all at once. It, it dawned on her like it did the other disciples gradually. And we see this when we look at verses 1 and 2. When she saw that the stone had been <clears throat> taken away from the tomb, we read that she, she ran and she went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, John, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. Evidently, Mary assumed that uh, grave robbers had taken Jesus' body. And you know what? In, In a sense, she's right. But Jesus is the grave robber. As as he told his disciples in Mark chapter 3, he entered into the strong man's house and he plundered it. Through through the gift of his life, he destroyed the one who had the power of death and its power and by his great generosity, he plundered the goods of the grave. And so the resurrection changes everything. It's the dawn of the new creation. It's the reversal of the status quo. And another way we see its significance, I think, is just in the sheer pace of this story, the heart-thumping, feet-running pace of this narrative. We read in verses 3 and 4, right? Mary goes and tells Peter and John, the tomb is empty. We don't know where they laid his body. And I just, I love this part of the story uh, you've got to imagine it. John and Peter hear what Mary says. They stand up, they run out, and they just start sprinting. They, they run to the tomb, and John adds this little detail that he outran the apostle Peter and beat him to the tomb. Now, I have no idea why John chose to say that. I don't know why he chose to devote so much attention to the fact that he beat Peter to the tomb. I don't know if it's comic relief or what, but surely the resurrection of Jesus has has inserted a bit of levity into the story here. I don't know what his point is. I I don't think he's just saying, you know, I'm faster than Peter. He's not trying to score athletic points here. Uh, The detail, though, is obviously significant to John since he mentions it not once, but twice in verse 4 and then again in verse 8. Maybe, maybe he's trying to account for his earnest love for Jesus. I don't know. If you have any ideas, share them with me afterwards and let me know. At any rate, the foot race certainly does add a great deal of vividness to the story, doesn't it? And perhaps that's part of the point. Because eyewitness testimony and the details matter. John John has this memory of of how it went down, how it happened, and and he would never forget. You know, I think about my own life, and there are so many details of my life that I've just simply forgotten. But those, those significant moments, 
those life-changing moments in my life, I remember every little detail. That's what John, I think, is, is communicating here. I'll tell you how it happened. Mary Magdalene rushed in and told us that his body was gone, so Peter and I took off running, and I beat Peter to the tomb. But I didn't go in. I peered in. And I think here you just see in the narrative that John and Peter are different individuals. John, John gets there first, but even though he beat Peter to the tomb, he, he just looked in but didn't enter. But when Peter came, huffing and puffing, he marched right into the tomb to see with his own eyes what had happened. You know, good old impetuous Peter, right? He may have been beaten to the tomb, but when he got there, he didn't stop. He went right in. And here's another way I think John wants us to see the significance of the resurrection. That it's death's defeat. That Jesus definitively conquered death. What do Peter and John see? Well, take a look at verses 5 through 7. Stooping to look in, John saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and Went into the tomb, he saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, of course, this is not what you would expect to find if, in fact, the tomb had been raided right, by grave robbers. Would they have left behind, you know, 75 pounds of ointment and expensive linen? Would they have bothered to, you know, fold up the, uh, the face cloth, and, and so forth. No, of course not. But that's just an aside. I don't think that's even... John, John's main concern here is not to discount the his body was stolen narrative. His, his main point is actually to draw your attention to a story that he has already told you in his gospel. It's meant to take you back to John chapter 11. In the story, when Jesus raised Lazarus, Lazarus, his friend, from the dead. Think of it this way. The Bible, the Bible is a hyperlinked text. Right? The Bible was hyperlinked before the internet was around. And, and the Gospel of John is super hyperlinked. <laughs> John chapter 20 is, this is underlined with a link directly to John chapter 11, where Jesus stood the front of the tomb, and called Lazarus out. Do you remember? Do you remember how all that happened? When Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. He came out of the tomb, but John wants us to understand that he was still wearing his grave clothes. Right, so according to John 11, verse 24, we read, the man who died came out, his hands and feet were bound with linen, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Do you get John's point? His point is nobody had to unbind Jesus. Nobody had to let him go. He had authority to lay down his life and take it up again. He laid down his life and he got back up again to never die again. John got the point. As we read in verse 8, he went in, he saw 
and he believed. In other words, he appears to have seen that the only explanation was that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead just as he said that he would. And it's worth noting that this combination of of seeing and believing becomes increasingly important in John's gospel. In John 20, verse 29, after uh, doubting Thomas made the, the famous confession, my Lord and my God, Jesus replies, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I want you to hear that loud and clear today from the lips of the Lord Jesus. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have believed and yet haven't seen. All of the different stories about seeing Jesus in John's gospel, including this one, lead us to this climatic moment when Jesus declares a blessing Let's, let's, let's bring it home. When Jesus declares a blessing on those of us who are here today who believe but have not yet seen him. You haven't seen him, have you? You haven't seen him with your own eyes, with his, his body. You haven't seen him in the flesh. You hear this word and you believe. And you, Do you remember how Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer, John 17, He says, I don't only pray for those who are with me, his disciples at that time. I also pray for those who will come to believe, not by seeing, but through through their what? Through their word. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed through the apostolic word. As Jesus is talking to you here, John saw and believed, but at this point, his his faith still left something to be desired, as verse 9, I think, uh, tells us. It goes on to explain. It's kind of odd when you first read it. It says, for as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Now there, our, our minds should run to places like Romans 10, 17, where Paul says faith comes through hearing, by hearing the word of Christ, or 2 Corinthians 5, where we, we live by faith, not by sight. Although it was incredible, and we shouldn't underestimate uh, what, it, what it meant for John to enter the tomb and to see Jesus' folded grave clothes, what John really wants us to see is that we are no less blessed than the beloved disciple. In fact, we are more blessed than the beloved disciple if we do not see and yet believe. I wonder if you believe that. Here we should recognize as well that those who doubt whether the Old Testament scriptures contain the same basic doctrine of the resurrection that clearly unfolds in the New Testament, that they need to read it again according to what John says here in John chapter 20. Not not only did Jesus repeatedly predict his own bodily death and physical resurrection, but according to verse 9, 
the Old Testament scripture itself clearly taught that he must rise from the dead. We can go all the way back to the first book of the Bible in Genesis 22, where Abraham is told to take his son, his only son, the son whom he loved, and to take him to Mount Moriah and offer him up as a sacrifice. That's a crucial text for the Gospel of John, by the way. It's what stands behind the most famous verse in the whole Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He did what Abraham did not have to do. But did you ever wonder what was going through Abraham's mind as he's leading his son up Mount Moriah? What was he thinking? The book of Hebrews tells us he was thinking that God would raise Isaac from the dead and give him back to him because God had promised that he would give him descendants through his son Isaac. Abraham had a resurrection faith. Similarly, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6, Hannah sings her faith in the resurrection. She sang, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up I think one of the most powerful Old Testament witnesses to the resurrection, we sung about it. I don't know if you, you noticed the allusion in the song, My Redeemer Lives, to Job. Job, despite all of the suffering, physical suffering that he experienced in Job chapter 19, verses 25 through 27, said, I know that my Redeemer lives And at the last, he will stand upon the earth after my skin has thus been destroyed. Yet in my flesh, I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. We also sung about it in Psalm 16, didn't we? Which I hope when you you read or sing Psalm 16, you appreciate the fact that you are singing a psalm that Jesus himself would have sung in faith looking forward to his own resurrection. Saying, Lord, Father, you will not abandon my body to the grave. You will not let it see corruption. And because that's true of Jesus, we can sing it too. Psalm 16 says, Therefore my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to shield, or let your Holy One see corruption. Isaiah 26 verse 19, the prophet declares, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Now I could just keep going and going and going. We could look at Daniel 12, Hosea 6, and host of other passages, but I think that's enough to make clear that what John is getting at Here's what he's getting at when he says that the Old Testament scripture, on its own terms, as Christian scripture, taught that Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, must rise from the dead. You know, it's really interesting, I think, in Luke chapter 16, when you have the the parable of uh, the rich man and, and Lazarus. And in the end, Jesus makes the conclusion, you know, here's the point of this story. It's not what you'd expect. 
I think when you read the parable, you expect it to be some kind of lesson about taking care of the poor, something that mattered a great deal to Jesus and to the church. But that wasn't the point of the parable. The point, Jesus concludes, that if people do not hear Moses and the prophets, in other words, if they do not believe the Old Testament, neither will they ever be convinced if with their own eyes they see someone rise again from the dead. Now, what is the point of all of this? What am I driving at? It's nothing less than the purpose statement of the entire Gospel of John. These things are written. They're written down. Don't miss John's climatic emphasis on the written word of God. And these things were written down so that we may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing, have life in him. Life in his name. That's the point of this passage. It's the point of this whole gospel. That by believing, even though you haven't seen him yet, you may share in his life now. Share in his resurrection life today. See friends, the empty tomb, it, it, is, it is full of meaning. Although we are much like Jesus' first disciples, slow to understand, slow to come to terms with its significance. As Jesus said, he is the resurrection and the life. And on the first day of the week, new creation dawned. The curse was undone. Death was definitively defeated. And though we haven't seen him yet, we can have his resurrection life by believing in his name. May God give all of us faith to believe in the Son of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did not spare your one and only Son, the apple of your eye, but you delivered him up for us all. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that uh, you, with authority, laid down your life and took it back up again so that we can know there is forgiveness of sins. There is uh, resurrection life. There is reconciliation with God and life eternal in a world made new by faith in your name. So Holy Spirit, give us all the faith to trust in in Christ, and to experience this resurrection power at work in us, and keep our eyes of faith fixed on Jesus until the day of his appearing, when we will see our Redeemer in the flesh with our very own eyes, and be transformed to be as he is. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.